Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto. While the front page is taking its summer break, we'll be shining a spotlight on some of the biggest podcasts and news events from the New Zealand Herald Network over the last year. This year marks 70 years since the Tangiwai rail disaster. 151 people died after the Wellington to Auckland Express derailed due to Laha washing out the rail bridge over the Whangahu River. The tragedy is remembered as our worst ever rail disaster. But did we learn any lessons from this incident? In this collaboration between the New Zealand Herald and the Motuhi Group, broadcaster Hamish Williams seeks to answer these questions. Listen to this excerpt from the first episode, and for the full season of Tangiwai of Forgotten History, find it on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. December 24th, 1953, a reliable steam train departed Wellington Central Station at 3pm. 285 passengers and crew were on board the express service to Auckland. 285 people bound for their Christmas Day destinations to spend with friends, family, loved ones. You can probably picture them all those years ago. The wooden carriages rattling up the line, smoke billowing from the two-ton steam engine, its piercing whistle cutting through the countryside. It is embarked on what was a long journey up the North Island. We know from records that the train was packed, filled to the brim with happy families, friends and the odd lone traveller, all with Christmas on their mind, regardless of their destination. Children chattering excitedly, adults swapping stories, looking forward to the summer holidays and the long break from work. A luggage car packed with presents, name tags already attached, waiting to be unwrapped just hours later on Christmas Day. At 10.21pm, seven hours into the journey, the locomotive came off the line at Tangawai. 151 people died after the train plunged into the Fongahu River, a river that had swollen in size due to a lahar that had raged down from Mount Ruapahu. The tragedy came at the end of a momentous year for New Zealand. It was a historic, record-shattering year for a tiny nation that had only just passed 2 million residents. It may seem hard for people today to fathom how much smaller Aotearoa was as a nation just 70 years ago. To imagine a world without the internet, without television even, when domestic air travel was still in its infancy, when rail was our main form of mass transit. That's one reason we still remember Tangawai so vividly. Not only does the incident remain our country's worst ever rail disaster, a shocking loss of life rivaled by few other incidents in our nation's history, but the impact it had on Kiwis' lives at the time was unforgettable. It's kind of like almost a lost piece of New Zealand history unless you live here. What I saw there, it's one of the biggest horrors of my life. There wasn't going to be any survivors, you know, or not, not many survivors anyway, from what was in front of you. I actually don't really remember what he said, something like, your daddy won't be coming home. What if this case says more about New Zealand's past, its present and its future than many realise or have remembered? This is a story about Tangawai, how 151 people died and how it shocked a nation. 
But this is also about Mount Ruapehu, a volcano that sits at the heart of the North Island, a 200,000-year-old beast that remains active to this day. And it remains a warning to us all, a living, breathing reminder of our volcanic past, our tectonic present, and the future we dare not to think about, but one we know is coming. We're not going to be able to avoid all the damage that climate change is going to do to our infrastructure. Whatever the answers are, we need to be doing that now, not waiting for the next disaster. Part of it is to make sure we do risk assessments appropriately. And sometimes they're done and we don't necessarily pay attention to them until after a disaster has happened. Will it be just a completely overwhelming act of God? Or will it be an act of God that actually if we'd up-spec'd a bit, we could have prevented? Kia ora. I'm Hamish Williams, your guide on this podcast, and you're listening to Tangawai, A Forgotten History, a podcast produced by Motuehi Group for the New Zealand Herald with the support of Irirangi Te Motu, New Zealand On Air. Tangawai is one of those stories that if you ask anyone over a certain age in this country, they remember where they were and what they were doing when they first heard about it. For me, the first time I learned about Tangawai was a book in primary school, The Tangawai Rail Disaster by Kevin Boone. Part of a series on New Zealand disasters, and I think I read all of them. Napier Earthquake, Ballantine's Fire, the Huahine Maritime Disaster, they were all there. Fast forward a couple of decades, and I've seen a few disasters firsthand in my work as a producer and broadcaster. A lot of the people are so scared about the possibility of ever going back down near uh, the water that they've come up this far up the mountain. Now, these people didn't Covering the 2009 Samoan tsunami, the Christchurch earthquakes of 2010 and 2011, I kept the 10 meter radius from the building. He was that scared that it may fall as well as the Pike River mine explosion. Each of those experiences was harrowing and unforgettable, ones I still think on regularly, and each incident has left its scars on the communities it affected. This year, 70 years on we got a harsh and fatal reminder of the importance infrastructure and understanding our country plays in our lives. When we get it right, it's something you never even notice. But when it goes wrong, a cyclone can decimate an entire region. Lahar can bring down a bridge. We run the risk of an event like Tangawai. Tangawai, more than any other disaster in New Zealand's history, occupies a unique space. There's a fascination that spurred on multiple books, television documentaries, radio series, even a made-for-TV movie that focused on the love story of New Zealand cricketer Bob Blair and his fiancée Nerissa Love, who was one of the passengers on the train and died. Bob heroically still went on to play in the test match in South Africa on Boxing Day, despite the heartbreaking news, a tragic love story that has endured. You're the first person I'd ever needed. Just... Don't forgive me, okay? Little slut. I wonder where I got that from. Holy hell. Yet for all this fascination, how well have we remembered the lessons of Tangawai? With many of the survivors or witnesses no longer with us and those that remain in their twilight years, we wanted to look back at this tragedy and tell their stories and remind ourselves 
of the lessons we have little time left to remember, given just how much time has already passed. Nineteen fifty three New Zealand. It was an unprecedented year in so many ways. The country was riding a wave of achievement and attention like never before. It kicked off in January with a sawmill manager and accountant, Godfrey Bowen, setting a new world record by shearing four hundred and fifty six sheep in just nine hours. Bowen has beaten the record by forty seven sheep and during the day dropped about two tonnes of wool on the floor for his cobber to pick up. Over a thousand pounds worth, but there'll be no need for the new champion to count sheep to get some sleep tonight. Yeah, that sort of got eclipsed when a beekeeper named Edmund and his Sherpa mate Tenzing Norgay became the first people to conquer the highest point on Earth, Mount Everest. Auckland sees the end of an epic journey to and from the top of the world, and a crowd of thousands waits to welcome New Zealand's heroes. From aboard the Solent flying boat, Sir Edmund Hillary and George Lowe emerged to report all's well to the men and women who in spirit were never far behind them. There was other exciting things happening as well, like the Korean War that New Zealand was involved with had ended. The Royal New Zealand Ballet was established, Auckland was the first city to introduce parking metres, and Vice President of the USA, Richard Nixon, even stopped by for a visit. Oh, and if you're wondering, it was also the last time the All Blacks lost a test match to Wales. Rowlands takes the conversion, two more points for Wales. There's no further score, so Wales have done it by 13 points to 8. And for those living it, well, it was pleasantly memorable. We did a lot of biking, we did a lot of fishing. So yeah, life was pretty cruisy. We'd make mud pies and we'd do all sorts of things. And we had a, a little cul-de-sac with, I don't know, probably eight kids, ten kids there, and we had a great life. I used to go to dances and dance with the girls. No nightclubs, no grog, but life was good. It was a good time to be alive. Even historians like Jim McAloon agree that the significance of the year remains a standout in our history. Well, this is less than 10 years after the Second World War had finished. A lot of people were, you know, still in that rebuilding phase. They were settling down, having families. On one level, times were good, jobs were plentiful. There was a lot of development of infrastructure, a sense of progress, a sense of optimism. It was said that we were a very prosperous country. On a lot of levels, we were. Exports were doing well. There was perhaps an illusory confidence that that would continue. To top it all off, though, the biggest attraction was a visit from the world's most famous person, the equivalent of a 21st century celebrity and influencer, all wrapped into one, was of course the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth II. Former Herald photographer Graeme Stewart was front and centre to see her arrive. It had never been a reigning monarch visit New Zealand until she arrived December 1953. I photographed her stepping onto New Zealand. So the Queen comes to New Zealand. 12,000 miles from the motherland, she is not among strangers. She has come to her New Zealand home. The Queen's arrival came at the start of the summer holidays, and to all those present, it felt like the continuation of a fresh, momentous vibe for the country. The second Elizabethan age had come to little old Aotearoa, 
and had bought some fresh technology with it. Graham's photo of the Queen appeared on the front page of the Herald on Christmas Eve, a first for the country. And that next day, Queen Elizabeth would deliver her first Christmas speech as a crown sovereign. But first, she had an important engagement to get to. Former police officer Bob Silk was on the beat that very night. On Christmas Eve 1953, I was on night shift, and at nine o'clock I reported down to the old government house at the end of Princess Street, opposite the area which later became the International Hotel. That was the old government house. And the Queen and the Duke were there, and that night there was a state ball, Auckland Museum. At any rate, I'm on the front gate. People were waiting there. They'd been waiting there for hours. At any rate, the next thing, the bubble top rolls comes back in and they drive in and she's waving. Probably couldn't see anybody, but she looks right at me and I thought, she's not that much older than I am. Earlier that day, 15-year-old John Mayhe was travelling with his 17-year-old sister on the ferry from Littleton, the port town that connects Christchurch, to Wellington to then catch the 3pm express train to Auckland. And Dad had a friend uh, that was actually from Dunedin, but she'd booked a, uh, a little place in Christchurch, so um, we were actually coming back from Christchurch that particular day. Powered by a KA-class steam locomotive, number 949, the train had a total of nine passenger carriages, two cargo vans, and carried a range of people, all bound for Christmas Day destinations with family and friends. The weather was fine and warm. It was a clear summer's evening. At 8.02pm, the naturally formed dam of Mount Ruapehu's crater lake gave way releasing two million cubic metres of water. This became mixed with ice, mud and rocks, creating what would become known as Lahar. And at speed, created a six metre high wave that surged down the Whangahu River. At 9pm, a policeman stationed in Waiuru heard the sound of a roar coming from the direction of the mountain. At 10.09pm, the express train left the Waiuru railway station. Sometime between 10 past 10 and 10.15pm, the Lahar reached the Tangawai Bridge, damaging it severely. Local man Cyril Ellis was the first to notice that the Tangawai Bridge was critically damaged while driving past it on the road, and aware that the train was approaching, attempted to alert the train drivers by waving his torch. Stop! A desperate attempt to prevent disaster. Whether it was the torch warning or that the drivers had seen the damaged bridge from their headlight, they slammed on the brakes as they approached the bridge. That released sand onto the rail that gave gripping to the steel wheels to slow the train down and the firemen turned the oil off to the burner. At 10.21pm, the bridge gave out under the weight of the train and plunged into the river along with five passenger carriages. The sixth carriage remained on an angle, teetering over the edge. Despite an attempt to get the 22 passengers to move out of the carriage, the coupling broke and it too 
tumbled down, remarkably with only one casualty. 151 people died that Christmas Eve. 20 of those were never recovered, and eight were unable to ever be identified due to the injuries they had sustained. You've just heard the first half of episode one of Tangiwai, A Forgotten History. You can listen to the second half as well as the rest of this major series on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.